I was reading this, I was thinking, why does this need to be in the Bible? Um, it feels like, and a lot of scholars agree, this really feels like an interruption to the entire Joseph plot line. It doesn't necessarily further it along at all. And so I'm thinking, like, why is this here? What is, what is God trying to say through this? Why did it get included? But Ken Hughes makes an observation in his commentary on Genesis that I found compelling. He says he notices that this account comes right on the heels of Jacob giving Pharaoh a double blessing. Remember that last week? And this comes exactly, it comes right on the heels of that. Now his son blesses. God's nation speaks blessing over a pagan nation, and then this happens. So last week we talked about how God has called us to bless our neighbors, including people that hold very different beliefs than we do. This account, I think, is a more detailed description of, of practically what that looks like to bless our neighbors. And so, so this is both kind of like an overlap of what we talked about last week, but also an expansion upon it. So keep that in mind. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Now there was no food in the land, for the famine was so severe, very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they spent their livestock, they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herd of our livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my, our Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for, the food, for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So jo Joseph brought all, bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because of the famine was severe on them and the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Now, then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have bought this, this day, bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And all the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the fields and food for yourselves and your households, and food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. So jo Joseph made a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day, that Pharaoh should have the fifth and the land of the priests, alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Groshen, and they gained possession in it, and fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 
for 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you have blessed us. You have not just said good words to us. You have done good deeds to us. And there is no one who has been as merciful to us as you or has been as generous to us as you, and we thank you for it. Lord, would you now speak to our hearts, change what we love the most, that we would love the things that you love the way that you love. And so be a reflection of our high priest and our high ruler, Jesus, to the world. It's in his sacred name we pray. Amen. Amen. Someone once said that we will never understand a movement until we understand its anxieties. The idea of being communicated in that axiom is that groups of people and entire, in fact, even entire societies act and behave in a way that they do for reasons that make perfectly good sense to them, even though it may not make sense to us. And fear or anxiety is a strong motivator for action. People today talk about movements and they focus on the behavior, but I wonder if we've bothered to take the time to try to understand the anxieties, the worries that are behind that behavior. If you listen to mainly Christian voices right now, the fear that you're going to hear is that society is getting far too secular, and that's really bad for everyone. But what's interesting is if you listen to mainly non-religious voices right now, guess what they're saying? Their fear is that society is getting far too religious, and that's bad for everyone. I've picked up on something. Unbelievers are scared of believers occupying positions of power in our society. But why? But why? That's the question we should ask. That's the question we should seek to understand. I don't pretend to even know the whole reason. I think part of the reason is that they think that if that happens, then believers will make life harder and be a curse to everyone else that doesn't share their particular beliefs. And yet here's the truth that we as a church learned last week. It is actually because of our religious beliefs that we are compelled to bless our neighbor. Christians specifically are duty-bound by our God to love our neighbors no matter who they are or what they believe. This is a core teaching of our religion, if you want to use that word. That is a core teaching of what we believe. It is not something that we are permitted to disregard. What if they know that about us? Joseph, if we see the story, he's a believer. He's a believer in Yahweh, the one true God, right? We just sing about that. God has called his family to live as neighbors to Egypt. And here's the thing. He miraculously holds the highest position in the Egyptian government right now. I mean, he's functionally equal to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is technically over him, but he functionally has got the highest position right now. Whatever he says happens. That's what Pharaoh told him. And so here's the question that the passage tries to answer for you and I today. What does it look like for believers to bless a society of neighbors? 
we're supposed to be a neighbor, then what does it look like to bless a, a whole society of neighbors? Because that's what he's doing. Well, I think that there's a goal that we are seeking after. There's a goal we're trying to accomplish, and I think there's a posture that we take. And I think we're going to see this in the text, okay? First of all, blessing our neighbor means working for their flourishing, not just ours. Blessing our neighbor means working for their flourishing, not just ours. Let's go to the text here. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. So just notice, this doesn't go to him. All right? He's not getting something out of this. This is going to, to Pharaoh the king. Now, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, and at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your household and as food for your little ones. I love that he just like specifically mentioned their children here. And that's kind of including household, right? But he wants to let these people know. I'm specifically thinking of your little kids. 25. And they said, here's the response to this, this law he, decree he passes. Here's the response. They said, you have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. So to understand how much Joseph blessed the citizens of Egypt, we really have to look at his agricultural reforms through their eyes, through the eyes of their culture at that time, not through our modern-day eyes. Joseph is not exploiting them when he buys up all the land for the, the king. He's not saying, hey, I, just, I got him right where I want him, like he's a loan shark. He's not doing that, and they don't see him doing it that way. No, he's clear that he is saving their life. In fact, that's why God brought him there, right, for the salvation of many, God says, right? So notice every time that the people give Joseph money or they give him property, Joseph gives them something of real value. Did you notice that? Also note that it is the people who suggest selling themselves to the government. Joseph didn't bring that up. That was their idea. They brought that up. And by the way, that was a common practice back then, to sell yourself into what was called debt servitude or debt slavery. It was a real common thing to do, to pay off a debt. But here's the thing. Joseph goes the extra mile as good as that is, he goes the extra mile. He actually gives them their own seed to use at their discretion, as well as food to live on until the crops come to harvest. This is better than sharecropping. He's saving them. And get this, he's not just saving them from dying, but he's saving them from begging in the meantime till the harvest comes around. And so what is he doing? He is giving these people dignity. He's giving them dignity. You're a man. I see you as a man, as a woman. Let's look at more of this. His taxes are mere 20% to the government. You think you pay a lot now, huh? 20%, but we put it in perspective, right? The citizens live on 80% of whatever their crop produces. 
whether that's a bumper crop or what, what it doesn't matter. They get to live on 80% of what they produce. This is far and away more merciful when we compare it to other kingdoms of that time in the Mesopotamian era, era and region. Far more generous, far more compassionate. According to Old Testament scholar Von Rod, a 40% tax was common. 40% tax was common. And a 60% tax on citizens was not unheard of, which only perpetuated perpetuate a life of poverty among the citizens of that king and kingdom. And guys, the very fact that Joseph even bothers to listen to the starving and tries to care for them was not normal for government at the time. That's not how it worked back then. We miss that fact because in our society, we just assume human rights. We don't even make a case for it anymore. We just assume that they are. Well, that wasn't the case back then. Back then, nobody assumed humans had rights. Nobody assumed humans had any more rights than a horse or a mule. That wasn't normal. You earned your right to exist. You earned your human rights. Being human wasn't enough. So you earned your right to exist by either being rich or being very skilled at something or being born into royalty or being some kind of an influence or a benefactor of somebody else. And so when you were unable to contribute, guess what? You were on your own. Those rights kind of came and went. Yikes. Joseph's reforms were so beneficial, notice this, to both the government and the people that his statute was kept in practice for generations after he died. That's how wise it was. That's how great and beneficial and how much it helped people flourish. People said, don't change that law. Let's keep doing whatever that Hebrew did. We like that. That's how great this is. Like, this should put context to what he's saying here. This is a very good, wise thing he did. Joseph is a Hebrew. He believes in Yahweh, the one true God, and yet he uses his power in government to work for the flourishing of all the pagan Egyptians. Not just his family that's camped out in Goshen. He's taking care of his family and everyone else. That word and, have you noticed that's been like a big theme the last few weeks? And. Instead of thinking, well, how can I use my power just to bless my people first? Joseph draws a bigger circle of blessing that includes his neighbors. In fact, includes his whole society. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm thinking this while I'm reading this and studying this. I'm like, what compels Joseph to do this? Because he clearly doesn't have to do this. So what is pushing him? What is compelling him to act in this way. I think it's because he was taught the first two chapters of Genesis. The reason he's acting the way he is in chapter 48 is because he was taught by his, par his parents chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, which is what? Imago Dei, image of God. And he knew that, and he believed that. Joseph knew that all people, no matter who they are or what they believe, are made in the image of God, and therefore they have dignity that must be preserved. Because God gave them that dignity, and there's a duty to preserve that dignity. Listen, it was his religious beliefs, not 
cultural beliefs and not cultural expectations, but it was precisely his religious beliefs that compel him to use his power to work for the flourishing of all Egyptians, not just his people, not just his tribe. Put it another way, to work for the flourishing of only his people and not his neighbors would actually go to be going against his religious beliefs and what he was taught. And how do, these not, how do these Egyptians respond to this, to what he does? The non-believing Egyptians, they saw this believer working for their flourishing, working for their good and not their destruction, working to bless their society, not curse their society, and they respond with what? Praise and gratitude. And I don't want to change that law. That's how they respond to this. They're not afraid to live under the rule of Joseph, the Hebrew who worships that weird God. They're not afraid. They like what he does. They're okay with that. Are you guys getting a picture here? Even though he's different from them, and why are they not afraid to live under his rule? Because they can plainly see that he's using his power for their good, not just the good of his people which is, by the way, is a reflection to them of the God that he says that he worships. What did Jesus say? Let your light shine before all men. Let them see what? Your good works, and then they'll worship your Father in heaven. That's, that's what Joseph's doing. I'll tell you something I think is doing this really well right now um, is a Christian philosopher named Nancy Piercing. Piercing. In her latest book, Love Thy Body, she puts forth a case for the goodness, not simply the truthfulness, but the goodness of the Christian view of personhood as it relates to the unborn, homosexuality, transgenderism, euthanasia, and other non-controversial subjects. Uh, Piercy demonstrates through their, not just this, but through all of her writings, she really demonstrates that she understands the anxieties of her opponents. She's like, I hear and I get what you're worried about. I understand that. And she shows how far from being hateful or demeaning the Christian worldview lived out is actually beneficial and good, and it is life-giving to all people in a society. It really comes through with her writings. I just, just quote her one quote here. She says, The assumption of secularists is that the body gives no clue to our identity. It gives no guidance to what our sexual choices should be. The body is irrelevant and insignificant. But this is a profoundly disrespectful view of the human body. By contrast, the biblical morality expresses a high view of the dignity and significance of the body. You see how she writes? See how she makes her case? She demonstrates that even if someone disagrees with her conclusions, they must admit that she is working for their flourishing as a human being made in the image of God. She holds to that fundamental imago Dei. It's one of the first teachings we see in the Bible. That guides so much. It should guide what we think, too. So, family, what, what, what would it do, do you think, to the fears of our non-religious neighbors in our society if they knew that Christians were using power for their good, not just our good? 
What do you think I would do for them? If we somehow demonstrated to them that we are seeking their flourishing and their blessing, not their oppression, I think it might lessen their fears. I think it really might lessen their fears. I think it might make them relax a little bit. I think it might make them feel a little less threatened by us and that that would actually open the door to peace. So, so how, could we, how could we actually demonstrate this to people? How could we show it and demonstrate it to, to our neighbors? I'd like to make a modest suggestion. What if we understood voting as a way of showing our neighbors that we love them as much as we love ourselves? What if we put it in that kind of framework? Like that, what we thought that Though we have different beliefs and in the end we may come to very different sol solutions, what if we did a better job of showing our neighbor that we're trying to use our power to bless their life in the end, that we really do want to do good to them and not harm to them? And that's how we framed this. It doesn't mean that we're going to use our power to bring about the solutions that they want. It just simply means that we're using our power to address their fears, their worries, and their anxieties too, not just what we're afraid of, which means we probably need to understand what those fears are. This way of living in a society is the very wisdom of Jesus himself. Look at Luke 6, 31. Jesus says, and as you wish that others would, what? Do, do. So this is about doing. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those that love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those that love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. I'm so glad Jesus is not controversial, aren't you? Brothers and sisters, has not Jesus loved us when we definitively did not love him? Huh? Did not Jesus, your Jesus, my Jesus, did he not do good to us when we did not do good to him? So do you see, guys, do you see that we are kingdom people? It is the gospel of Jesus that compels us to do work, to work for the flourishing of our neighbor. That should be a consideration. So, so what does blessed our neighbor look like? Well, I think another thing we see here in the text is that blessed our neighbor means displaying tolerance towards them. It's displaying tolerance towards them. We'll go to the text here in verse 20. Says, so Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all of Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was so severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them. From one end of Egypt to the other. Verse 22, only the land of the priests he did not buy. Here's the reasoning. For the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived 
on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. So check this out. When Joseph buys up all the land for Pharaoh and he imposes his uh, modest tax, he makes an exception for the Egyptian priests. Isn't that interesting in a society? I think this is kind of a significant thing because this detail is recorded twice. There's a long reasoning and a shorter reason for this. He gave pagan priests who had very different religious beliefs and very different worship practices than he did a religious exemption. Isn't that curious? And the reason is that the priests did not live off the land. They lived off what? The mercy of Pharaoh. These priests, they did not have the knowledge or the skills to suddenly become farmers or ranchers, and they weren't going to be shepherds. That's an abomination to them, remember? And so to force them to do so would be putting an additional burden. It would be putting additional hardship upon them when they were already locked into living off the mercy and the goodwill of the king. So check this out. The situation is this nation is in a, they're in a, uh, a food crisis. They're also consequently in an economic crisis, and there's a lot of turmoil. Joseph is setting up these reforms to save uh, people's lives and sustain the government by instituting this tax. He could have very well, he could have, it was so easy for him to take this as opportunity. If he was an opportunist, it would be great for him to take this opportunity to tax the Egyptian clergy right out of existence. They're done. They're already burdened. I'm going to put an additional burden that other people don't have, and they're gone. And I'll just buy up the land and the, t- the land that temples, all the temples sit on. He could have taken that opportunity. After all, they teach untrue things. They worship a false god, and they don't keep it to themselves. They propagate this. They spread this around, and that's not good, is it? But instead of using his power to coerce people out of their false religious beliefs or to silence their voice, Joseph grants them an exemption in society. He shows them tolerance by what? Making accommodation for them to be there as they are. He uses, in other words, guys, he uses his power to serve them. And you know how the people respond. Thank you. We will gladly be your slaves. We want to be your servants. Rule us. Family, we live in a time when we have traded dialogue in true debate for name-calling and shutting down other people's opinions. Just label them so you don't even have to listen to them and shout at them so you shut them down. We're not even talking. We've traded that. We live in what's called cancel culture. If you know what that is, cancel culture. It's like canceling your Netflix subscription. Just delete. Cancel culture is when large groups of people revoke support for a person, whether it's financial or otherwise, over a real or perceived transgression. We all decided that was wrong, so we cancel you. And that's the environment we live in right now. It sounds like this. You said something that our tribe doesn't like, so we're going to stop listening to you forever. 
Or like this, you believe something that we don't agree with, so we'll boycott your business, we're going to burn your albums, leave your church, embarrass you on social media, and show contempt for you in the hopes that you'll be coerced into changing your beliefs and changing your ways to the way that we like it. That's cancel culture, and that's how it works. John Inazu, he's a professor of law and political science at Washington State, uh, Washington University in St. Louis, and in his book, Confident Pluralism, Inazu writes about the long-term effects on cancel culture on a society's ability to function well, function in a healthy way. He actually writes, he's actually written about this years ago. He says that cancel culture, regardless of who uses it, because everybody's using it right now, by the way, just to be clear. He says cancel culture, regardless of who uses it, actually works against the health of a pluralistic society because it does not use power to allow people with deeply different beliefs to openly live together. It keeps us from open, living openly together. We've got to hide things. Keep it underground. Instead, what it does is it uses power to coerce people into a certain way of thinking instead of using power to create venues for persuasion. Venues where we might persuade one another. Gathering places where we could talk about our deep differences and maybe persuade each other. It's interesting. It, it, it does this. It does this because cancel culture does not distinguish between ideas and people. That takes a lot of work. Because you got to get your emotions out of the way, right? <laughs> but it doesn't make that distinction. It doesn't hold to nuance. Instead of attacking a bad idea, cancel culture attacks a person deemed bad and what they represent. And over time, this behavior only makes a society more tribal and more suspicious of the other which, by the way, is exactly what we're experiencing right now. Amen? And what's interesting, that's exactly what Inazu predicted just a few years ago. We're living this out. True tolerance from a biblical worldview does the hard work of making a distinction between ideas and people. Not all ideas are equal in value. Not all ideas are equal in value. All people are equal in value, and they should be treated as valuable, which over time makes for a much more beautiful society to live in. Don't you want to be a part of that kind of world? I do. So, so what does this mean? Like, let's put the cookies on the lowest shelf here, right? Okay. Blessing our neighbor means something like this. It means using power to make space for various religious beliefs in a society, not just our beliefs. For example, we work for the religious freedom, uh, not just of fellow Christians, but for the freedom of all people. Our Muslim neighbors, our Mormon neighbors, our Jewish neighbors, our New Age neighbors as well. Even though we will work to persuade them of the truth by, by ensuring that we'll, we're going to ensure that they have a place at the table so they can do that. We're not going to silence them. We're going to persuade them. Blessing our neighbor also means that we're using our power to create space for more conversations about touchy topics, 
not less space for those conversations. We're not going to shut dialogue down with hurtful insults or threats of withdrawing friendships and support. In short, tolerance means employing the power of persuasion and rejecting the power of coercion when we interact with people who hold deeply different beliefs than us. When we use power in this way, we are acting like our king, our high ruler, Jesus, who's the better Joseph. Look at Mark chapter 10. And Jesus called them, his followers, he called them to him, and he said to them, he's about to give them a teaching of what it means to follow him. You know that those are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. That's how the Gentiles use their power. They lord it over everyone else that's under them. You know that, right? And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. That's not how you use power. But whoever would want to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even I, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That says a whole lot about what, what Joseph was doing, right? Joseph was the ruler. And the people, how they respond, we want to be your slave. We want to be your servant. Why? Because they saw that he was serving all of them. They all wanted to be his servant. Why? Because he was serving all of them. Say, you persuade, you got us. We'll do it. Guys, think about this. Jesus won your heart and Jesus won my heart by persuasion, not coercion. Think about it. That is how the king of kings exercised his great and awesome power. He used his power to guarantee that he would be pinned to a cross and no one would get in the way of that. And no one would stop that, not even Peter with his sword, right? That's how he used his power and authority to ensure he would get crucified so that he might forgive our sins. Sins from people who really offend him, by the way. His love for us, family, his service to you and I, his sacrifice for our good and for our flourishing is what won us over to Jesus, did it not? Isn't that what you love about Jesus? Well, this is how we're to persuade our neighbors as well. We use our power to serve them, to seek their welfare, to seek their blessing, whether they eventually come to believe like us or not. We tell you, you don't have to be afraid of us. We love you. Amen. Let's pray.